Hey, what's up, friends? Welcome to uh, the Deconstruction Zone. It looks a little different than it usually does because we're not in our normal studio and Emily's not here, Dustin's not here, but I am joined uh, with a good friend of mine, Rabbi Joshua Stanton, who is in New York. But that's the only introduction I'm going to give you because I want you, Josh, to introduce yourself for us. So who are you? What do you do? And uh, let's start with that. So I'm Josh Stanton. I'm the rabbi at East End Temple in Manhattan. And I am Director of Leadership at CLAL, the National Jewish Center for Learning and Leadership. Um, I think that uh, Pastor Leibarger and I are engaged in similar things, asking sure. big questions about where spirituality and religion and faith can take root and who we can connect with who might not otherwise walk through the doors of a church or a synagogue or another sacred space. Yeah. Well, so this, and I don't know uh, if you've ever tuned in for the deconstruction zone, but essentially like, I don't know if this, I don't think it's maybe a big thing, but correct me if I'm wrong. Like deconstruction is a huge thing right now in the Christian world. Like there's a lot of building up. We just did an episode on kind of deconstructing the church, which we think kind of is the, the primary thing. It's not necessarily what people believe about God or Jesus, but what the church has become. So there's a lot of deconstructing. And I don't know, it, is that a thing that's happening within the Jewish faith? Like how much is there kind of a wrestling in deconstruction? Is that a thing in the in your faith? I think so. So I just uh, wrote about an awakening that I see happening in the Jewish community yeah. where people love being Jewish and they do not like the organizations that are related to Judaism. They would much rather be Jewish at home, much rather be Jewish with their friends, much rather be Jewish by reading a book or watching an Israeli TV show than they would coming into most synagogues like mine. And so I think we're heading in a, in a very parallel direction mm. where we are having to question everything. What is a rabbi? What does it mean to have a house of worship? What does it mean sure. to have a community center? What does it mean to believe or not believe? What are the boundaries of our tradition? And how open can our doors really be mm. before we lose a sense of self? Yeah. Well, that's really, that's, I mean, so it sounds like we're going through very similar kind of journeys. And one of the things that I think about often is, uh, at least within like my world and I interact with something, like, I see something, right. And I can only see it from my perspective, but sometimes hearing about someone else seeing the same thing, but from a different perspective can really shed new light on how I interact with whatever that thing is, whether it's a joy, a sorrow or a tension or a hurdle. And so I wonder, like, you came to the well, which is the church I pastor, and you came and you talked about kind of the, you talked a little bit about the, the relationship between siblings and faith, so the Christian and Jewish faith. But a lot of what you talked about was kind of the the agility, for lack of a better term, you might use a different word, but the agility of how you as a practitioner, like look at the text and how someone could read a verse, even like we, like in the beginning uh, from Genesis 1, and it could be faithfully translated in a lot of ways, Right. And so I just wonder from your perspective, because a lot of deconstruction happens from what we're told and mm -hmm. our job is to kind of dive in and do the research. And I, I said this before we started recording, like in the Christian tradition, at least I would say like wrestling is very out of bounds, but it sounds like wrestling is an integral part of your faith. And so would you just talk a little more about that for like maybe someone that has no context of the Jewish faith, um, which is funny because it's like the, the father of our faith, right? But maybe someone doesn't have that like understanding. And so 
when you think about wrestling, do you think it's an integral part of your faith or is it something that's shunned or like, where do you see that relationship? I think that wrestling is inherent to Judaism. The question is how much should we wrestle mm. and over what topics? So okay. we've been around since before the bronze age in one form or fashion. And I view Christianity as a sibling religion. I don't think we're parent child sure, sure. or something like that. I view us very much as splitting at a key moment in history when okay. the second temple was destroyed and everyone looked around saying, okay, we're definitely not doing that anymore. What are <laughs> yeah. we going to do? But if you go back to the Torah text, it was, I think, uh, created for the people at the time. And that means mm. a bronze age audience or real close to it. And so when we read Torah, we have to grapple with it because we're not in the Bronze Age. We're in the Information Age. We've been through a lot of different transformations in the world. But the beautiful thing we can do is ask, what is universal and what is specific to a time or a place? Mm. And the reason we can ask it is because the things that aren't so universal, they really stand out. So if someone doesn't observe the Sabbath, I'm not going to go stone them. If someone uh, engages in other types of practices that the book of Leviticus doesn't like, there's no way that I'm going to take them literally. Sure. And yet there are other aspects of tradition that call out to us in ways that transcend time and transcend place. Mm. And so the idea that we are part of something bigger than ourselves, that mm. we experience holiness most when we are in community, the idea that God sometimes speaks vertically and sometimes horizontally. The idea that Moses was the unlikeliest of leaders. They say in our tradition, the most humble leader who had probably a speech impediment of some sort, who was reluctant. There's so much there that transcends time and place. Mm. The idea that Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, was from a different tradition and transformed Israelite custom. That's the universal who are the unlikely friends of our traditions that we need to welcome in, even if like Jethro, they're a priest of another tribe or another tradition. So there are some messages that speak to us remarkably directly. And I find it very clarifying those that don't, because there's an underlying kernel of wisdom. We just have to make sense of the time or the place in which it was shared. Hmm. That's really good on a lot of levels. First being that I'm actually preaching about Moses this weekend uh, at my church, uh, which I just think is really, really interesting. Like that, I feel like God always, like you said, the vertical and the horizontal. Like, I think that's really interesting. Like that's, I feel like God speaking horizontally between us, right? Now, like as a, a confirmation and affirmation, I think that's just like really, really cool. And uh, even the idea of everything you said was like a, a core of kind of what I'm talking about, which is just really interesting. Like, and we had not talked about this before. Um, but that's so I'm interested in wondering that ethos of thought of kind of context, like mattering and we're in the Bronze Age versus the information agents text. Are you a, a rogue rabbi in that? Is that widely accepted? Like what's the what's the general religious tone within Judaism as a whole for that kind of work? Because, again, like one of the biggest pushbacks I get as a what would be deemed as a progressive pastor is being contextual is not being faithful to the text that's something i would hear and so maybe talk about both those things like the the prevalence of being contextual and how do you see that being faithful to the text so we have a wonderful challenge in jewish tradition that we can't decide whether text is written or spoken 
So there are many people, including many who are traditional believers. If you even read uh, the Torah itself, the words of the Torah were originally dictated to Moses. They were spoken. And then Moses spoke them unto others. So there's this question of when was it written down? And that is something that is open to conversation. There are a lot of thoughts about that. But at some point, this oral tradition was written down. And then there was more conversation about it. It wasn't closed. People wanted to talk more and ask questions. What does this word mean? What does that word mean? What do they mean brought together? And so then we had another oral tradition. And then we wrote that down. It's called the Mishnah in about 225 CE. There is another book, another compilation written down. And right when we think we had it written down, then we start talking about it. And so for another (laughs) 400 years, we're talking about it. And then we write that down. And then we think we have a closed canon. Now it's called the Talmud, which is the whole set of Jewish law and tradition and custom. And then people start talking about it again. And so they create all these oral commentaries and then they write those commentaries down. And so now we have commentaries on the, we have written commentaries that used to be oral commentaries on written commentaries that used to be oral commentaries (laughs) on written law that used to be oral law on written law that used to be oral law that is about an oral tradition that was written down in the Torah. And so it's an open conversation. And the key question, the challenge is what is written? What is spoken? What is the difference between the two? And how do they change our understanding of truth about particular topics and about the ways that we can engage in the conversation? And so my belief as a more progressive rabbi is that it is ultimately a conversation that is meant for us to be a part of. And that means that us speaking with people through the centuries, it is a living conversation. And it is never to say we need to get rid of the other people with whom we disagree or ignore all of the interpretations with which we disagree. It's just pretty clear that a lot of this was spoken. Mm. We can speak with it and listen to it and hopefully add to it. Torah is a process, not an outcome. That's so good. I, I like, I don't think I've ever heard, I mean, we've talked a lot in, in regards to some of this stuff. I don't think I've ever heard you say that before the idea is a, a process and not an outcome. And I would be interested, like, because I think my lived experience as a, as a pastor, like, and I think I maybe heard this in the subtext of what you're saying. So like as a progressive pastor in the Christian tradition, I don't find a lot of like synergy with some of my more conservative or traditional uh, pastors. Though I would love to, I think the connection would be really, really life-giving for both of our sides. And I, I say that actually, maybe not like some of my best friends are more conservative pastors and we have actually made a decision to stay in covenant together because we think it's the most fruitful thing for us as individuals. Um, but do you, what's the synergy like between you as a more progressive rabbi and some of the more conservative ones? Like, even though there's this idea that it, is it oral or is it written and we're always wrestling, like, do you find that level of community? Because I think for uh, our primarily Christian audience or maybe even agnostic audience listening, they're like, how do I find, we're tribal people in some ways. And so we look for our tribe, right? And so how do I find my group of people to be with? And where can I just say like, I'm going to create room for the gray and invite everyone to be a part of this with me. Um, I don't know if that question makes sense or not. Makes but. so much sense. So I'm part of an organization called CLAW, the National Jewish Center for Learning and Leadership, yeah. which is all about pluralism. And Brad Hirschfield, the rabbi who is president of it, he came out with a book that I love, 
which is called You Don't Have to Be Wrong for Me to Be Right. Oh, and I think that that says so much. So I stay in covenant with Brad, who is an Orthodox rabbi. I stay in covenant with people across a spectrum. And the boundary is, do you believe you know everything? Mm. If you think you know all of the truth, I'm not going to gain in conversation with you. Sure. You've got the answers. I've got questions. If you are so self-confident that you know everything, nothing good is going to become of this conversation. But if you can say, I don't know everything, there are mysteries in the world, the Torah is more complicated than me, there is truth beyond me, I can talk to you. Conservative, liberal, and all across the spectrum. And that is sort of the boundary that I've had to draw. And it's almost as much about the individual, because certainly there are very arrogant progressives sure. as it is about the stream of thought or the theology itself. Yeah, that's, a, that's really interesting. I try to leave with that question often of like, hey, I could be wrong about this, right? Like that's something that I think is a helpful and healthy place um, to lead with. And so I would be interested, this is just like, and maybe this is too personal. So you could be like, Danny, I'm not answering this. And so jump somewhere else. But what's something that you're like, I'm not even like, I'm not sure about, like that you're willing, and maybe not willing to be convinced about, but I think that's one of the things that I go into. So I'll use this as an example for myself. Like I'm very strong on pro LGBTQ inclusion. And I think like I see scripture point to that. And I also say like, I could be wrong in the sense that like, if you look at scripture, at least the Christian Bible, like you could find and pull verses to say that it doesn't have that. I would say I strongly believe in that, but I try to lead with, I could be wrong. Is there a, is there a theological thing that you really care about, but you're like, I hold it with more open hands and try to be loose with it just for the sake of always trying to learn? So I struggle with the, and by the way, this is a struggle that Jews are welcome to have, but it might sound unfamiliar or even heretical in a Christian context. So I want to paraphrase that this is not a, a heresy from within my own tradition, but I struggle with the question of whether there is a personal God or God is a force in the universe. Hmm. And I struggle because of all of the painful experiences that Jews have had throughout the ages, the inquisition, um, the crusades, the Holocaust, the destruction of the second temple. A lot of horrible things have happened to Jews and have happened to us as a collective and as individuals. And so Jews have to stare down the very difficult question that is still alive and especially alive with those who survived the Holocaust. Where was God at Auschwitz? If God cares about every individual, where was God? And for me, I, it's like the rational part of me believes in an impersonal God that's like a force in the universe, an ordering force. And then there are some moments when I feel like I am communicating directly with something. So it's actually a disagreement within me because everything changes about Torah. Everything changes about community. If you think there's even the possibility of a personal God and on different days and in different moments, I don't agree with myself. Hmm. How, so that, I think that's really, really uh, not only profound, but compelling in the sense that there can be like this level of, tension within yourself. And so I have two questions. The first one is, I'll let you answer first, but like, is that paradox something that's pretty widely, like, you said what you said isn't heretical, but is holding paradox like a pretty Jewish tradition? 
Absolutely. Um, we, our tradition, because it's conversational, speaks in multiple voices. And what you have to do is figure out which voices speak to you. And that includes big questions about belief. There are wonderful conversations. Is it more important to be a righteous person or have faith in God? And unambiguously, you need to be a righteous person. What you do is supposed to inspire your belief, not the other way around. Sure. And so I'm able to enter into those conversations with a degree of comfort sometimes. And a lot of people are right there. I think Jews post-Holocaust and also especially American Jews struggle with it because American Jews were encouraged to secularize. We're a large immigrant community. And that was sort of the price of admission to American society in the mainstream was be a Seinfeld Jew, not to knock Seinfeld. He's a great Jew, <laughs> but, you know, be, be someone who's funny and talks sure. about society, but don't have faith at the center. Mm. And so a lot of Jews are now reexamining what is it that we can believe or don't believe? Mm. And what is it, you know, is there a rational way to approach faith? How do we hold science and faith at the same time? But I think there's a real hunger for more spiritual connection in the Jewish community. And that also means more of a connection to a force or a higher power than many of us currently have. Yeah, that's one. I think it's really wonderful. And like, I love that answer. The, the second thing, and I think this is a more like sensitive topic, but in terms of like, you're talking about the wrestling with the pain that has come to the Jewish people, um, the Inquisition and the Holocaust. Like those are things that like, I would say my people or, or myself, like I just personally haven't experienced that and I don't have the cultural connection to that, but I know that a universal thing is trauma, right? There, people have levels of trauma and I would never say that one person's trauma is more significant or insignificant, but that's one thing that I would be really interested in because a lot of our audience um, they would probably not say that their trauma is on the level of the Holocaust for good reason. Right. But I would say a, a really interesting question that you can answer that maybe someone like myself that I feel like has had a privileged, privileged life and track record hmm. is how, did, how have you seen in with health and with faith at the center and with community and all of that, how have you seen someone be able to process their faith with such great trauma in the rearview mirror. So one of the things that I have marveled at is the number of people who have experienced horrors, who have been able to give voice to a belief, an idea, a sense of enduring compassion that still exists in the world. Um, so my grandfather uh, was a refugee from Germany he only found out he was Jewish. He was actually Lutheran. His parents were Lutheran, but he was genetically Jewish from the standpoint of the Nazis. And mm -hmm. so at 17, he had to flee Germany and ultimately by way of Switzerland and then the United Kingdom came to the United States and had to grapple with the reality that he had lost the majority of his family in the Holocaust. He mm -hmm. got his nuclear family out. But if you were to look at our family tree, there would be, you know, 80 or 90% would be dead. Hmm. And he spent decades working on it. First saying, oh my goodness, the first thing I know about being Jewish is people want to kill me. That's all he knew about being Jewish, yeah. Lutheran. And then eventually reconnecting Jewishly. And I loved his theological descriptions were beautiful coming out of such horror and trauma. 
He said, if I could be something in the world, it would be a fruit tree. And I was like, what are you talking about? He ultimately, he joined the American military, was behind enemy lines. He's like this war hero who did a lot for the U.S. and really scary stuff. And there he is in his 80s, like, I want to be a fruit tree. And I'm like, <laughs> what, what gives? Like, are you crazy? Like, what, what are you talking about? And what he said is a fruit tree hurts nobody. But it gives people sustenance. It gives people a delicious fruit to enjoy. Mm. And that is what the human being should aspire to be. And the other mm. thing is, he said, there is a good spirit in the universe. There is something good out there. Might or might not connect with us individually. But the world is kind of miraculous. Mm. And the universe is kind of amazing. And I, so he wasn't making any truth claims about who was saved and who was not and why. He was not making any claims about where God was during the Holocaust, but he said, you know what? Mm. Even having seen the worst of the world, there's still something good out there. Yeah. This is, and this is your grandfather, correct? Yes. And so I would be interested to know, like, so you're, you're a Jewish rabbi and your grandfather was a, a culturally Jewish, but Lutheran up into a point and you're a rabbi, like how much did his story and maybe there's none of it, but like, did any of his, your conversations and any of that, like really play into your desire to go into kind of vocational ministry as a rabbi? It probably helped shape my identity because his is a story of return. And so is my father's. My father um, never formally converted to Judaism, but married a Jewish person, lived in Israel, learned Hebrew, reconnected okay. deeply and so did his brother. So my grandfather eventually kind of came back to it. He described himself as a heathen Jew, um, <laughs> which I think is wonderful. But actually, I finally, there's this amazing paper I have. It's actually up on my computer. Um, and it's about his story of return and also about his orientation to religion going way, way back to when he was Lutheran in Germany. And uh, Pastor Niemöller was his pastor. And uh, Martin Niemöller and gave him his first copy of the Bible and came, was a regular at his home. Hmm. And so when I decided to become a rabbi, a lot of people in my family were like, that's nice, but don't you want to get a real career or, sure. you know, sort of one of those like. I'm glad to know oh, our, our cultures have something in common, I guess. right? <laughs> yeah, 100%. <laughs> and, and my grandfather was like, that is the most important thing you can do is getting religions to get along. We need good religious leaders. Go do it. Why? Martin Niemöller is your pastor, one mm. of the most righteous people who was in and out of concentration camps, fighting the Nazis, training my grandfather as a kid. My grandfather would throw bricks at Nazi youth. So literally was being trained by an incredible pastor to fight mm. Nazis, physically fight Nazis sure. uh, as a teenager. He's like, no. What, what you're going to go and do, you can do a lot of good through it. Yes. And so in a way, I don't know about faith in something bigger, benign spirit of the universe, good spirit of the universe, sure. But he had faith in the role that religious leaders can play, mm. at least at their best. And I thought that was beautiful. In some ways, what he was implying is, if you can prevent another Holocaust or something like it, there's nothing more important you can do. I will say, as far as friends and people that I interview, you're 
by far one of my favorites in, in both uh, both both contexts. Uh, because you, I think we we speak a lot from the same well, or we draw from the same well. And so I would be interested to hear you just speak a little bit because this is what drew us together, and our audience wouldn't know this, but you and I we met in Israel uh, back. What are we going to say? Like 2017, maybe. Yeah, Something that like sounds that. right. And uh, we had not known each other, but I was on a trip led by uh, Rabbi Hirschfield, who you mentioned earlier, and you were helping lead that. And then actually, I feel bad saying this is one of my seminary professors that I don't even remember the name of. I only remember the rabbis that were on the trip. But uh, but Pastor it, Brian McGuire. That's the one. Thank you. I appreciate that. I met him on that trip, too. And so but you had stuck with me and I thought it was really, really wonderful. And I would just be interested because I think from my perspective, the seat I'm sitting in, I'm a, I'm a Christian pastor, United Methodist pastor, but I want to be able to create some level of greater interfaith dialogue. Because I think that's where deconstruction is leading for Christians is to find the plurality of things. And you can deeply hold convictions of what you do believe, but still hold open-handedly a space to to grab hold and hold on to the people that maybe you always thought were your enemies and are actually your friends and allies. And so chat with us just a little bit, because maybe our people you mentioned at the beginning, but likely don't know the work you're doing. And so share a little bit about the interfaith work you're doing, because I think obviously, I mean, I would say everything you're doing is compelling, but this is something that's, I think, universally compelling to an agnostic, an atheist, a Jew, uh, a Christian, anyone. So we're living in the world's most religiously diverse society. And we've got to figure out how we can do that really well. And so what is hospitality? What is loving your neighbor? What is loving not only what is similar about your neighbor, but what is really different and sometimes is surprising or even feels strange or unsettling to you? That's the conundrum we have to answer. And what I love in Jewish tradition, you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. And what does that mean? You have to love yourself. So step one to pluralism work is, understanding, deepening your relationship with your own tradition. And then step two is figuring out how you can bring that love and sense of authentic self and relationship with your tradition into conversation and into actions with others. Hmm. One of the things that we have found as most compelling, um, you would say in Hebrew, first you do and then you understand. So very often people try to lead with dialogue. And in our case, I could talk with you. If, if this conversation went on another eight hours, you probably have to send me some hot sauce as per your prior uh, <laughs> Hot Thoughts podcast. But otherwise, we'd be in a really good place. Sure. Um, but very often dialogue, 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 it gets old or yeah. it never really ignites. And so if you start by feeding the hungry, if you start by... Uh, identifying a common social issue, expanding voter rights. If you uh, find other things that are um, natural sources of commonality, you can go from there. So in my synagogue, the, the oldest continuously operating church in the United States, Middle Collegiate Church, um, very tragically, uh, about a year ago, a year and a half ago now, went up in flames. It was not arson. It was nothing terrible. But uh, it went up in flames. And so this beautiful building was no more. And this church community had no space. So we actually invited them into our synagogue. We're covering, I think it's 98 or so percent of their costs. So I actually had people in my synagogue cover the costs of this church. And now what are we doing? Now we're building together. Now we're volunteering together. 
Now we're doing advocacy work together. Now we're learning together. And so first you do the thing that builds trust. You open the doors of your synagogue to a church that needs a place to call home until they can rebuild. And then you understand what that collaboration and partnership is really all about. Can you hear me now? Yeah, sorry. That's what I think is so wonderful. And one of the reasons I really valued our friendship is that like this idea that um, we're building bridges first and diving into debate later. And, and with what you're doing with this church, you're building relationship first and not that you're trying to do it for the sake of debate. Cause I know for a fact, just knowing you, you're not doing that, but you're saying like, we're going to build bridges and that's the most important thing that we're going to do. And so, um, so where I'm at, I, I gotta, I gotta log us off soon. Cause we're about to go dive into something, but for our audience, one of the questions I always ask uh, either my co-host Emily or any guests we have is if you were going to give advice to someone in the deconstruction process from your vantage point, and I think you have a really specific one and unique one, even if it's not a, a Christian deconstructor's space, just based on everything you've said. And from your tradition, maybe looking at uh, Danny and I'm in the, in the throes of deconstruction, I'm looking around in the system that I know has harmed me and I'm tearing it down. And what I've been told about Jesus is, is harming me and I'm tearing it down and I, I, all these things. What would be your advice or encouragement or just prayer for that person in the midst of that? It would be the same prayer and uh, and hope that Moses had for the Israelites before they crossed into the promised land. Chazak v'amatz. Be strong and be resolute. You are engaging in something sacred. It is a difficult journey. It requires heart. It requires mind. It requires community. And ultimately, you will find a place to call home. It's like you've listened to our podcast before, because you said essentially what we that's so wonderful. I think staying resolute and understanding that this is what we say often. This is a process of discipleship. It's not a it's not something that's talking you further away from God. It's actually drawing you closer to God. And so, man, I appreciate that blessing and that prayer for us. And so if you're listening for the first time, um, I hope. Uh, Rabbi Josh's words really hit you in a way that maybe you're the most compelling that you've ever heard and know that this journey is one that will be difficult. Maybe it's one that could be hard, but to stay strong, resolute, know that it's a process that is drawing you closer to God, I think is the promise uh, of that. And so Josh, I thank you so much just for your friendship, um, just for joining us on this Uh, friends watching us. uh, We hope to see you back next week. We ask you just to embrace the journey with us and we'll see you back as we continue uh, deconstructing together. Thank you so much.